Welcome back to the Houndsfield Unit. I'm Cody Quirk, your host. This episode features private equity groups in radiology. In this episode, we bring you Dr. Elizabeth Hawk, a member of Radiology Partners Matrix Teleradiology Division, and Dr. Dan Ortiz, a member of Summit Radiology, a private practice outside of Atlanta, and published author on the subject. Private equity or corporate radiology groups make up an increasing share of the market. Many of our colleagues have joined or may have had their practices sold to one of these groups. We look to get two different views from both inside and outside one of these practices. As always, please subscribe to our podcast, and you guys can always reach us with comments at houndsfieldpod at gmail.com. Thanks to Dr. Hawk and Ortiz for giving us their time and expertise on this topic. Today we have Dr. Elizabeth Hawk here with us. So thanks so much for being on the Hounsfield Unit podcast with us to talk a little bit about private equity groups and radiology. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be joining you. Yeah. So um, we're going to start a little bit uh, about with your background. So you are part of Radiology Partners, uh, which uh, is a group that has private equity interests, um, but it is run by uh, a group of radiologists. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about how, how your group is and, and uh, the, a little bit about the private equity backing, if you're Absolutely. able to? Yeah, so I um, am a part of Radiology Partners, but specifically, I belong to our matrix practice, which is an internal teleradiology practice that covers different radiology partners groups across the country. Um, our larger practice is based off of a principle called OPAL, which means one practice locally led. So every single practice retains its own autonomy and decision making, etc. Um, and one of those decisions is how to cover overnight and after hours coverage. They all have different needs um, for their groups. So Matrix is there, my practice, to help cover those needs internally for the larger national practice. Um, we all, as a practice, uh, have different financial structures and needs as well, but uh, we are private equity backed at the national uh, level. So as, as a group that is backed by, um, one, you're a large national group, so you're, you're the largest practice in uh, America right now, if I'm not mistaken, correct? We're the largest uh, radiology, radiologist-run radiology practice. Okay. Uh, so I guess there's a there's a little bit of differentiation there. Is there another practice that may be larger that's not necessarily radiologist run? Um, not that I'm aware of. Not that's purely okay. radiology. Yeah, just just for clarification there. But um, the what kind of things do you think are positives about having a, such a large group that's uh, nationwide and has so many uh, different smaller groups that make it up? Um, well, we're getting into benefits of scale, uh, mm -hmm. which is really what you're talking about. Um, and there is tremendous power and potential opportunity when you get into a larger scale operation. Um, and really what we focus on is our practices ability to be transformative in the patient care space. So we have access to data, uh, we have access to um, many different sites of very heterogeneous patient populations that enable us to look at the way radiology is being practiced and to really think about how we can implement meaningful change to elevate the field as a whole. So from a uh, patient's perspective, um, what, what kind of things do you think you specifically bring that can, can make their care a little bit better? 
So we have a whole arm of our national practice based off of this, and this is the RPRI or the Research Institute. Um, one of the really exciting things that's come out of that is our look at best practices and um, findings that can be seen on, on different types of imaging. Um, looking at things like thyroid nodules, abdominal aortic aneurysms, other things like that, um, and whether or not they're being appropriately identified and whether or not they're being uniformly um, analyzed with appropriate follow-up recommendations being made and communicated to our referring physicians. So we have a whole AI tool, RecoMD, that's designed around looking at that. Um, and we've done a um, tremendous amount of research looking at these best practice recommendations and how they're impacting patient care and um, bettering the care that we provide ultimately. I think that's a, an important point to make about uh, AI. And I think that's probably, um, from listening to people talk about it, Nina specifically in your radiology partners group. If you haven't heard of Dr. Kotler, she is the Associate Chief Medical Officer for Radiology Partners and has done extensive research in the field of artificial intelligence. Um, and the way they approach AI from a perspective of how can we improve patient care and um, use science and evidence-based medicine to uh, make specific recommendations rather than leaving it up to you remembering specifically what the Fleischner criteria is for this nodule or what our new TIRADS criteria are so that you can, uh, so that's a, that's an interesting uh, thing that you bring up in terms of the, these economies of scale, because you can, as you push that out across your entire practice, that really kind of transforms how um, people will see radiology, number one, and how we can uh, kind of ensure that our patients are getting the best possible uh, outcomes, essentially. Absolutely. And one of the most important things we think about when we uh, look at AI solutions or, or other patient care quality improvement projects is, are you um, addressing healthcare inequities across the United States? Or are you developing solutions that are based in heterogeneous data so that we don't deepen healthcare inequities? Mm -hmm. um, and it's really easy to sort of fall into a homogeneous patient data trap when you're one local practice that has a single isolated population. Um, but when we have a large scale like we do and have a really wide diversity of different patient populations, we're able to look at and develop tools that lessen healthcare inequities rather than deepening them. That's an that's a excellent uh, a point to make there. A uh, larger practice, you'll see a much wider variety of patients so, so that you can, you can make those decisions. Um, so do you see any possible detriments to, to a national practice and a um, private equity-backed practice specifically? So I think uh, one of the biggest challenges is the larger you get, the harder it is to maintain really authentic lines of communication. Mm -hmm. um, and whether that's, you know, between local RADs at the local practice level or communicating between our practice leaders to our national level, um, as you grow and as you grow rapidly, those lines of communication can get stressed. And the culture that's so important and core and central to your practice um, is dependent on those lines of communication. So I think one of the biggest challenges that we have to look at across the board is how we can maintain very authentic and impactful lines of communication when we continue to grow. 
So um, do you, do you see anything detrimental about having private equity in the, in the field of radiology as a whole, not necessarily pertaining to your group, but just on the whole? Uh, you know, personally, no, I don't. I think um, it's one way that allows um, growth and innovation to, to come to light. I think at the end of the day, you need to look at a practice and judge it based off of what they've done, not uh, what monies were used to get to that point. Um, look at them, say, how have they transformed patient care? How have they addressed physician burnout and wellness? And um, are their radiologists happy? And then go from there. I think that those are important points to make. Um, and not every private equity back group is going to have the same motives. Um, and so I think that it has to be taken on a case by case basis. And you have to, like you said, you have to speak to people who are actually in that practice and actually know exactly what's going on, where that money's coming from and where it's going and what their, what their motives really are. Absolutely. Um, so since we're kind of talking about that, what advice would you give to any young radiologists who are looking at groups who are either a already in it or maybe looking at joining a group like this? I would say number one, go for culture. Um, numbers shift, contracts shift, um, small ins and outs like vacation shift over time. And they're going to evolve hopefully with um, a good longevity and a good stint of time that you're going to spend in that practice. Um, but culture is something that's central and that while it may evolve is core to the practice. So um, look at things like the well-being of their radiologists, look at things like how have their radiologists professionally developed over their time there, and look at the opportunities for growth within the practice and ask yourself, am I going to be happy coming to work every day? And if you can answer those questions, numbers aside, um, I think you will have found a really good practice to stay in. I, I agree with that. I think that's just good, good life advice in general. Um, yeah. How do people who are interviewing, say, with a private practice group, no matter what size they are uh, or where they are, how do they approach this question uh, to, a, to a practice of, are you looking at joining one of these uh, national groups or um, are you already in the process? Uh, how, how would you say they should approach that? Um, I think that's a great question. I think it should be approached. And I think honestly, you can approach it very frankly. One of the questions that I love is where do you see your practice in one year, in mm -hmm. five years, um, and see how that starts the discussion. Um, if it comes from a place of respect and you want to directly ask, um, do you see your practice selling or joining a larger um, group of practices, I think that's a totally appropriate question to ask very straightforwardly. Mm -hmm. um, and a good group with a lot of integrity will give you a very straightforward answer. Yeah. So I, I agree with that. The, um, a group with integrity should give you a straightforward answer. If they can't give you that, you may not want to join that group in, in general. So absolutely. Um, what, uh, what specifics about your group made you choose to become a part of it? Uh, when I was looking for, I was specifically looking for teleradiology solutions. Mm -hmm. I'm a mom with three young boys at home and I wanted to be home and present for them. So I did interview and look um, very thoroughly at a lot of the major players in the game. Um, I didn't sort of just choose radiology partners and then mm -hmm. move on. I, I looked everywhere. Um, and I looked at a, a number of, of different things, but what I really wanted um, specifically for me was a group that was really focused on patient care 
that had a, a center in patient-centered care, and that allowed space and resources for me to grow my career professionally. That truly, you know, celebrated professional advancement and, and personal growth as well. Um, I didn't sort of want to be a, a cog in the wheel or um, just another person on a shift. I mm -hmm. wanted the chance to grow. Um, so I didn't look for contract specifics or numbers or vacation days. Um, I went for a culture that was really centered around a common goal of patient care and that really celebrated professional advancement of all the individual members of that practice. And that's, that's why I chose where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. Now you, your, your situation is a little bit unique because you do, you work for Rad Partners, right? But you also do some research and have a lab as well, correct? So I, I work for Radiology Partners, but I also am faculty at Stanford. Um, I do do some research at Stanford, but most of my work there is actually clinical with okay. the Division of Nuclear Medicine. Uh, I think that that's a, an important point that you make, and is the flexibility you have with your current position, which is not going to be for every RP practice. Uh, some of uh, many of them, most of them, probably are kind of a true private practice type feel, correct? Yes. Um, so, and and then once you break down to the local level, I think. Um, one important factor it sounds like you guys have is that the local groups are, are kind of maintaining control of a lot of the day-to-day -day decisions and how their radiologist vacation goes and that sort of thing. Exactly. So it's the Opal One practice locally led. Uh, we also like to take that a step further though and say that it's one culture locally led. Mm -hmm. And we hope that although they're retaining their own decision making that they still stay rooted in our sort of core values of integrity. Mm -hmm. Is there any way that you guys have to ensure that that occurs or? We, we, uh, we do, uh, but it's more of um, a partnership in that we, you know, share ideas and work synergistically off one another across our practice network. So one of the things that we do is we have our practice leadership summit or PLS um, at least once a year. And that's where all the different practice leaders come together um, share ideas, share challenges, work through things together, and can really talk about um, how they're addressing different situations together. Mm -hmm. And then you have your more national practice, such as we were talking about AI just a few minutes ago, to offer to these groups. Um, do they all use that, or is it, is it required that they use it, or is it an optional thing? Or Again, so we're one practice locally led. So resources are available and mm -hmm. uh, how they choose to access them or use them will be really up to the individual practice needs and the patients that they serve. Okay, great. Well, um, do you have any last uh, comments here that you'd like to make about it? It seems like um, kind of where we're at now is it's very group dependent. Um, and if you're evaluating a practice that's part of a larger national group, you need to look at the specifics and try to learn as much as you can about one, the national group, and then also about the local culture. Absolutely. I think if you've seen one practice, you've seen one practice. Um, <laughs> and you really just need to get down into the weeds uh, or open up the hood and, and see what's underneath and what makes people tick and what's, what drives uh, growth and innovation and, and look from there. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's about culture and it's about why we practice and why we do the work that we do. And I think that you should really judge any group off of what they're doing for patient care, what they're doing for the radiologists and how they're transforming the field of radiology on a larger scale. Um, and if you judge them based off of their merits, uh, not off of their labels, I think you'll get a very true and authentic answer. Great, uh, I think that's great advice. So thanks so much for being on with us today. Thank you, I appreciate it.
All right. So you were talking uh, just a little while ago about uh, AI um, in your practice. So what, uh, particularly for your practice, what do you think the motivation behind developing these, um, these programs is? Um, a lot of talk about AI and where it's going and what we're doing with it as a community of radiologists. Um, my practice has chosen to put a ton of resources into it, developing in-house homegrown solutions uh, that directly impact the way we deliver patient care. Um, a lot of people have now started talking about whether AI will replace physicians or- We've definitely um, heard a lot of that. Gonna, yeah, exactly. How it's gonna impact our workflow. Uh, is it gonna make us less valuable as radiologists? What's it gonna look like for the future of our up and coming trainees? And many people counter that argument with, look, uh, AI is here. It's going to impact patient care no matter what we do. And at the end of the day, AI isn't going to replace physicians. The physicians that do AI and know AI and understand AI are going to replace the physicians that don't. Um, and, and my practice has recognized that and, and embraced that. And although we're not labeled as academic, we uh, do do very robust in-house research to try and build these programs that are very transformative in how we approach patient care. Um, we're not trying to replace ourselves in any way. What we're trying to do is create a more valuable way of practicing medicine. And the hope is at the end of the day, um, the value proposition that we've built is one that elevates patient care, that increases the value of the individual radiologist because the radiologist is driving this innovation. Um, and that we become leaders in this field um, and uh, continue to stay leaders in the field of radiology. Excellent technology should only deepen the patient-physician relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, should remove all the barriers and silos and allow physicians to practice their art more fully and be more valuable in the patient's care journey. And that's really the goal of AI is to enable that relationship and that evolution of our value proposition as radiologists. A few, you know, there's a lot of uh, critiques out there about corporate radiology um, and among them being how the, the whole process goes down, especially for young radiologists who may be associates in a practice and may not have a, a vote in this process or perhaps have joined a group and then after they join before they even start uh, the group has decided to, to join one of these practices. Um, so along that line, why do you think that uh, private practice groups are going this route and um, what's, what's some of their motivation behind it, do you think? Uh, some of the motivation behind um, choosing to join a larger corporate structure? Exactly. Uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's about preserving autonomy while achieving benefits of scale. So um, I really only like to speak from experience. I, I don't have experience in the other corporate structures, but I do mm -hmm. have experience within my own. Yeah, of course. Um, and the groups that choose to join us are the smallest of the small and the biggest of the big. So we have everything from one to two person groups that join us to large, large groups with, with even hundreds of physicians. Um, and the unique thing is that they are able to preserve their autonomy, their decision-making process in terms of their local practice and their local ideas and the way they do things, but they're able to um, benefit from the scale of joining a larger group. Um, so 
when you combine those two things at once, it makes it a very attractive um, option for practices to join our structure because they're able to keep all the things that are good um, and then address all the holes that they may have that they need that are inhibiting their own growth. Yeah, and so you, you think by joining a, a larger practice, um, it maybe changes the game a little bit for the radiologist, um, particularly since things are only getting harder and harder with billing and dealing with hospitals, you think that this, they see this as a way to, to fight back a little bit. Well, certainly there are the nuts and bolts of um, their basic practice value. You know, you want to increase your volume, decrease your cost, and you can do that in, in different sort of strategic ways, such as buying in bulk malpractice insurance and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but there's a larger piece that I think is more important there, and that's um, being able to support the radiologists, particularly the young ones, in their professional development, um, in their leadership development, and having the resources available that perhaps a small and isolated group wouldn't have in terms of allowing people to really go on that path of professional development, um, looking at things like diversity, looking at things like physician burnout, which is one of the you know, most pressing topics on Aunt Minnie, um, looking at all of these larger issues of really the experience of what it means to be a radiologist and seeing if your practice has the resources to support you in that as you professionally develop and whether joining a larger national or corporate practice would able in, empower that smaller private practice to provide that to their radiologists. So are you able to tell us a, a, just a, maybe a few examples of those things that, that your practice provides for young radiologists? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I was looking at different practices to join, um, and I came from a small independent private practice before I joined Radiology Partners, I was looking for a place that would really um, allow me to practice a high level of patient care, but also develop professionally. So um, some of the opportunities that I've been given right off the bat was um, first to help me develop those leadership skills. In residency and in fellowship, we're given some leadership training, but it's highly variable. And for the most part, it's never robust. Mm -hmm. So you can seek out you know, excellent things through the RLI and other programs, but most people are coming in as young rads into their private practice with limited leadership training. Um, so one of the things that Radiology Partners gave me was the opportunity to participate in coaching and coaching circles, which meet regularly where I could you know, learn those skills and get 360 feedback. Um, we have um, set didactic programs through our RPRI, which is our RP Research Institute, that helps us really sit down and learn in a structured way how to develop those leadership skills. Um, and then we have a really strong culture of mentorship and sponsorship. Um, and the opportunities that I've been given through sponsorship in the last few years have been really exciting. So they give you the, the training that you need to excel and then as you excel and, and develop the potential, you can move into positions. And uh, some of the things that young radiologists are able to do, for example, are to run for our physician support boards. Um, so physician support boards are national boards focused on different topics around the practice. So I've run and been elected to two of our support boards, one that focuses on culture and leadership and one that focuses on recruitment. Um, and those are, were both opportunities that were open to me as a young radiologist, having been trained and given leadership skills that I was able to then go out 
and apply in a really meaningful way um, with really robust projects that we're able to sort of put forth over the course of the year. Um, it ranges from anything from uh, diversity. I was one of the founding members of our belonging committee to um, RP1, which is our philanthropic efforts to support teammates affected by COVID. So um, it's a really interesting process and it's really deeply rooted in the culture of the practice that we take young uh, physicians, empower them with formal didactics and informal mentorship and training, and then let them apply that into formal leadership roles as they continue to develop along their career. So you guys can uh, help uh, develop the next next crop of radiology leaders out there, right? That's the goal. I mean, our, our biggest asset at the end of the day is our people. And our, our most valuable asset are our youngest radiologists. If we don't invest in them heavily, uh, we don't have a future as a practice. So it's very, very important to who we are. So since we're kind of talking about leadership, uh, it seems that your group in particular, more so than other corporate radiology practices, at least that I know of personally, um, as they, they it seem to encourage their members to be involved in organized radiology, things like the ACR, your uh, Brad Partners Twitter feed is always involved in the ACR tweet chats. You guys recently put on a webinar that featured Dr. McGinty and Dr. Gottlieb uh, talking about the election in 2020 and how it relates to healthcare. Um, so how do you see this kind of playing out um, from that perspective? Well, I think it's important to remember that no one, not any large corporate structure, is ever going to be bigger than the larger house of radiology. And we're a beautiful, big, and diverse community. Um, and there will always be some diversity within that community, no matter how it evolves over time. And uh, none of us is as smart as all of us, right? It, it sounds trite, but it's true. And the only way we build and grow and, and transform, not only as a practice, but as a profession, is if we're willing to be open-minded and really listen and hear a diversity of opinions and contribute to a conversation that's robust and dynamic and full of differing and sometimes contrasting opinions. Um, and that's core of who we are and what we do. And I, I think that that's core to a lot of very successful corporate structures is that they, they listen and they hear a diversity of voices and that they're eager to be involved in the conversation. So I think having um, the humility to approach the situation, knowing that the house of radiology is really the biggest structure and that we're going to be most successful as a profession if we all speak together is what really drives the motivation behind my practice and many other practices being so supportive, particularly of their young members participating and volunteering with the different national organizations. Um, it's really just essential to our survival as a profession. And I think we all see that. Um, I will say that there's a lot of power in the young radiologist. And if a young radiologist finds themselves in one of those practices, um, they can be a force. They, they can be a transformative force within that practice. They can work to move that culture um, certainly, my practice's culture has been driven over the last few years by the younger radiologist voice, um, showing what's important, showing what we should be focused on. Um, and I have a lot of faith in our really, really strong YPS section to help mold those practices that perhaps need to move in that direction. So what I would encourage people to, to go out, listen, learn, 
and then be a meaningful part of that change because they are empowered to shape the culture that's evolving in front of them. Do you think that there are more opportunities as a young radiologist to do that in a structure like the group that you're in, traditional private practice setting? It's an interesting question. You know, I think hierarchy is present in all settings. It's present in, you know, traditional independent private practices. It's, it's present in corporate structures. It's certainly present in academia. Um, it's about, uh, looking carefully at a, at a practice, learning the culture, and then understanding how to operate within that culture as you're a transformative voice. Um, hierarchy can be an issue and it's very, very practice dependent. So some academics may have a stronger hierarchical, um, infrastructure than others. Some corporate structures may have a stronger hierarchical infrastructure than others. I don't think it's unique to the label that you put on the financial backing of the structure. I think it's just unique to the practice. Yeah, each one has its own. That is certainly the case in academics. I haven't been in a couple academic institutions. It's very dependent on the local culture and the whoever the chair is at that time and, and even the people above the chair. So um, that's, a, that's a good point. We I'm, I'm planning to speak to Dan about his um, his article that was in the JCR regarding early career radiologists' perceptions of corporate radiology practices. And overall, I mean, he had about 600 people respond to his survey, and um, they were vastly negative towards uh, corporate radiology. Um, what do you think, A, drives that? And is there a way that you um, and your group are working to change that? Yeah. Um, you know, I think at its simplest piece, fear is a very powerful emotion. And fear is most often rooted in lack of understanding and lack of knowledge. Um, I don't, you know, doubt the results of his survey. Um, I've read the paper, it's well written. Uh, but I think that most of the opinions and the thoughts and ideas, while they feel very real, are driven by fear and lack of understanding. I, I think a lot of people's understanding of what it feels like to be a young rad in a corporate structure are driven by secondhand information or rumor or hearsay. Um, and that very few people have actually gone out and spoken to rads and gotten their firsthand experience of what it's like to be within a practice. Yeah, I mean, um, honestly, I think you may be uh, before this interview, I think you may be the first person I'd actually talked to in a rad partner's practice. So, Exactly. But my guess is you probably filled out that survey. And based I don't remember your... if I did, but it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were someone else. And, and, mm -hmm. and based their opinions based off of what they may have heard someone say that another person said. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's really about getting to the root of where these opinions come from and what they're based off of. Um, are they based off of fear? And is that fear born from a place of misunderstanding? Um, so the best way to combat that is just with education, with, you know, being in the light, stepping out, having conversations like this, and telling people what it's like to be a radiologist in one of these practices. And it's only my practice, it's this experience, you have to talk to radiologists across lots of different practices and get that really good firsthand information. You know, I get a lot of different residents uh, direct messaging me on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And their number one question that they ask is not about um, paychecks or partnership or anything like that. 
their one simple question is, are you happy? And I think that that's important that people go out and ask that question and understand that um, and start to have the conversation and, and get real information that's based off of facts. And I think that as we have conversations such as this and as we are open-minded and talk to one another about whether or not we're happy and why and what that is, um, then opinions will shift and they won't shift, you know, strongly into one direction or the other. They'll lie more along the wide spectrum of diversity of different experiences of what it means to be a radiologist. And that dichotomy of corporate, non-corporate, um, very, very, you know, dark light um, will fade over time. And, and we'll understand that this is more of a spectrum and more of an experience of practicing medicine and that there is going to be a wide variety of different experiences that we can all talk about and learn from with one another and, and change that conversation over time. I think that's a, that's a great point. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that people say is driving the move to more corporate type practices is the idea that younger physicians uh, are not as interested in managing the business side of things. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily true in radiology. Most people that I know who are young radiologists are interested in that side of, of radiology. I think what you, exactly what you said is true, where they're looking for, looking for the happiness, that good work-life balance and the ability to make an impact and whatever practice they do choose, whether that's private practice, academics, or a corporate group, um, or even hospital employment. Um, people want to make an impact, so and that will help them be happy. Sure, finances play a role in it. Vacation plays a role in all of that. But at the end of the day, do you feel like you've made an impact? And how do you feel about that impact uh, are the biggest driving forces to, to people's uh, job decisions. Absolutely. I, I like the phrase, don't tell me what you value, show me your budget and I'll tell you what you value. <laughs> um, so it's important to look at a practice and see where they invest their time and their energy and their resources. You know, we invest millions of dollars into young physician development in our research institute. Um, and we're committing even more resources in the 2021 year specifically to our young radiologists. Um, and, and you know, not everyone is gonna be passionate about everything. So there may be some young physicians who are budding leaders who are really not passionate about, um, you know, revenue cycles or things like that. But they may be really passionate about diversity efforts in radiology, or they may be really passionate about um, radiologist wellness or um, philanthropy and outreach. So it's important that you find a home where you can grow and your individual passions have space and resources um, to help you be fulfilled in that manner, you know, because um, not everyone, you're right, not everyone wants to be a practice president. That's just not what they want to do as a physician practicing radiology. But maybe diversity is super important to them. And it's important that they're able to drive those efforts and have a home and have the resources to be able to do that. Um, so part of what being happy gets down to in a practice is whether or not you're able to um, grow those passions and feel fulfilled in the work that you're doing in a meaningful way to you. Absolutely. Well, I think we've hit on all of the questions that I have for you. If you have any other thoughts or anything you'd like to share with us, uh, feel free to go ahead. But otherwise, if not, then uh, thank you for your time. 
Thank you, Cody. I, uh, I would just urge people that if they have questions or they want to continue the conversation, um, to come talk, to email me or direct message me, any of my colleagues, um, any other radiologist in any other private practice structure. Um, go out and have those conversations, have the uncomfortable conversations, whether it's with a practice president or a young rad that just joined that practice. Um, go talk, because we can only be better by um, really enforcing those lines of communication and supporting one another along our collective journey as a YPS. You can reach Dr. Hawk at Hawk Imaging on Twitter. That's H-A-W-K Imaging. Or you can reach her by email, and that's hawkimaging at gmail.com. We're here with Dr. Dan Ortiz today to talk a little bit more about private equity and radiology. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ortiz. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, what, you're, what you do right now, and how you kind of got interested in the private equity uh, uh, aspect of radiology? Sure. Thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about this stuff with you. Um, so I am about a year and a third into uh, private practice down in Georgia. I'm in a practice called Summit Radiology Services. Um, we predominantly um, serve small and rural community hospitals. Um, some of the community hospitals are big regional medical centers for, for various counties and whatnot. I predominantly function as a general radiologist, but subspecialty trained in, in bone and joint imaging. So I still do a good bit of that as well. Um, my kind of interest and sort of start into this whole topic of corporization really stemmed from my time while I was serving as um, ACR resident fellow section chair and vice chair and sort of in, in that track. Um, this all started really out of work um, by Her Howard Fleischon, um, who did a task force and ultimately a white paper on the topic. Um, and during my time as a resident fellow section chair and uh, immediate past chair, I had the opportunity to go to the ACR board meetings um, and kind of heard a lot of the, the discussions about this topic. Um, and we, we had a person give a presentation about corporization and, and um, won't go into too many details, but they highlighted a few trends that they saw in, in junior physicians and they cited a lot of literature uh, for family medicine and internal medicine, and various other specialties, and they tried to pit radiology in that same bucket. And some of the things they came up with were um, young physicians are not interested in being part of the business of practices anymore. Young physicians just kind of want to collect their paycheck, not have to deal with a lot of administrative stuff and, and, just, and just be done with it. So they kind of painted this picture of radiologists, which I didn't see personally internally or amongst my peers. Um, so that really made me want to kind of explore this a little bit more. So I talked with Dr. Fleischon a bit about this and, and he suggested I kind of look into it and see the early career perceptions about this. And that ultimately led to kind of the study of the topic. Yeah, so you, um, I guess out of that is where the paper that you um, wrote uh, for the JACR came out of um, where you guys focused on early career radiologists perceptions of uh, corporatization and radiology um, and in that study it's kind of it's pretty amazing really because you 
show that most young radiologists are aware of corporatization and believe that it harms radiology. Actually, I think that had the highest percentage of, uh, of, of yes answers in terms of it was around uh, 85 to 90% range. Mm -hmm. um, and most people uh, also um, believe that uh, about half the people in the study showed that or knew that an, an early career radiologist that had been harmed by corporatization and about a little over 10%, it looks like, uh, know somebody who um, actually benefited from corporatization in radiology. So from the early career radiologist perspective, it seems that most of us have a bad perspective of corporatization in radiology and um, seems to seem to think that it, it's going to harm our, our specialty long term. Now, this is clearly not something that's unique to radiology, like you pointed out, uh, family medicine, emergency medicine, even orthopedics are seeing this trend as well. So what uh, what are some of the factors that you think have have led to it becoming so uh, prevalent when it's got such a negative view, especially from young radiologists? Well, I, I, I really think that the reason it's expanding is because of the, um, the pitch. So the pitch is directly to the decision makers and practices. And um, what's, what's interesting about it is when you look at the practices that have sold and you look at the demographic of the group, um, our, my perception or my, my, um, my guess would have been that it would have had predominantly senior, you know, 60 plus, uh, radiologists that would be driving this, but that's actually not the case. It's actually sort of the mid to late career radiologists that are in their, in their late forties, fifties that are really driving this. Um, so the pitch that they get is, Hey, you can get a lump sum of money up front, work X number of years based off the contract with us at a reduced salary. And by maintaining that um, contract with us for that amount of time, then you'll get another sort of bonus at, at the back end to be able to cash in on your shares. So this could really be attractive to some people that are looking for early retirement, which is a, you know, a big trend these days, people, you know, following white code investor and fire and whatnot. There's sort of this big push for, for early retirement. So that's really where it's being driven through. Now, the reason why this, you know, fairly diffuse poor perception of corporization and radiology amongst junior radiologists is not having much of an impact is because they're not in a seat of power. They are associates in a practice. They don't have a voting share. And most of the time, they're not even aware that their practice is even in discussions with these groups. Um, I heard one story out from the West Coast where uh, an associate in the practice didn't even hear about their practice being sold until two weeks after it sold, not even from his practice from another associate he knew in another practice. So all of these deals go down in very dark corners. Mm -hmm. this, this, this is not a transparent process. Um, a lot of times it's really decided amongst, you know, top senior leadership and board or whatnot of a practice before it even gets disseminated out to the partners. Um, and, and you have to remember, these are, these are corporations, these are businesses. So what are things that our businesses are really strong at? They're strong at marketing 
And in this scenario, they're marketing towards practices. They're sort of their customers, if you will. You know, they're exchanging money for the practice. So they're sort of, the, you know, this customer relationship with the, the partners. So they're very good at pitching what, what there is, but a lot of the downsides, they, they just don't talk about or blow over. So let's talk a little bit about some of those uh, downsides and, and what they mean for particularly the young radiologists, those who are either associates or currently in training who are looking at practices. Um, what are some of the downsides of joining into one of these groups? And then secondly, what are some of the things to keep an eye out for if you're interviewing with a group, a private practice group um, who may or may not be upfront about what they're discussing with uh, corporatized radiology? Sure. So I think I'm going to tackle your second question first, okay. as far as like um, how to approach interview season, because it's kind of fall. So there are you know, a lot of fellows right now out there and even fourth year residents are, are looking to, um, to interview with groups right now. So the approach that I took, um, I predominantly was, you know, looking at private practice. I did interview at an academic job as well, but I came in with, an understanding of this topic already because this was fresh on my mind when I personally was going through the interview season. Um, I think one important part is to look at the demographic of the practice, the makeup of the practice. Um, you know, the groups that tend to sell are going to trend towards older people being dominant in the practice. My practice, for instance, is very young, um, heavy. Mm -hmm. So most of the people in my practice are, are in their late thirties and forties. I look in more like a, a 20 year or at exactly. least more career. Exactly. So, you know, the, the, the demographic that corporate pitch is most attractive to are the people that are nearing towards the second half or, or later of the, the their careers. So if you have a people that a large group of people that are, are have long career horizons left, it's going to be less of a, an attractive pitch. Um, let me segue into that. For instance, um, let's just do a little bit of a math in our head here. So let's say, for instance, just throwing out a number partners are offered $4 million cash up front for, for selling the, the practice. And then they have to, stay in the practice for five years in order to reap the full benefits of, of their sale. Mm -hmm. Say that practice was already making $800,000 a year because these corporations tend to look for practices that have high salaries because the way they make their money is in those salary differentials. So if they can bring the partner salaries down to market average, let's say 300 for easy math, um, then they're recouping $500,000 a year from those partners. And then per, they'll say, okay, partner. yeah, per partner. So then they'll say, okay, now you have to work for us for five years at this reduced salary. Mm -hmm. So although they're getting say 4 million up front, that 500,000 for those five years is two and a half million. So they're ultimately getting about one and a half at, at the end. So, um, I forgot where that segue started from, <laughs> but anyway, so as far as looking at the makeup of the practices, it's important to kind of consider those things. 
mm -hmm. because it doesn't make sense for someone that's more junior because they're not going to have achieved sort of their retirement goals with even that attractive lump sum up front. And they still have to work for the practices down here. Mm -hmm. So um, I think, again, practice makeup is a big thing. Um, look at sort of the local market, see what the trends are in that local market. Um, practices that tend to be sort of monopolies in a market are really attractive to these corporations. Uh, take sort of the uh, Phoenix market, for instance, uh, Denver, Austin. These are sort of mm -hmm. markets where they were already kind of. They had most of the market. Had a monopoly. In that area. So what that does is if there's a large private practice in an attractive area, there's nowhere for their associates to go if they want to stay in that area. Mm -hmm. So they have less risk of attrition upon that on the upon the acquisition. So I would be mindful of that. You know, if you really want to go to a market, then you know that's that's you know a personal decision, but it's something to at least factor into the the conversation. Yeah. And so um, I think you you kind of brought up an important point there. I think uh, to just talk a little bit about um, why these groups are what what their ultimate goal is here, right? They they seem to want to uh, get as big a market share in an area as possible, so that they can have. Uh, so whenever they go to an insurer to negotiate rates, they have as much power as possible. Is that kind of what the ultimate uh, idea is there? Well, so yes and no. So it's that having a large market share, a large footprint is the goal, but it's not necessarily for the reason of, of having large standing against insurance. That's okay. what they will pitch to you. Okay. They would say, join us. We'll be this big conglomerate. We can fight those hospitals. We can fight those insurance companies. But the reality is there are other venues to achieve those goals without losing your autonomy, but they won't talk about these things. For instance, there are, there are, there are clinic models out there. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, and locally we have the Piedmont clinic, the Piedmont clinic, uh, one of the main hospital systems that my practice streets for is Piedmont healthcare system. They have a clinic model where individual physicians or physician groups that are independent, can sort of subscribe and be members of this clinic. They get multiple benefits such as, you know, quality and safety um, issues, kind of uh, best practices amongst different groups, mm -hmm. and sort of a lot of the, the, the benefits from a patient care side. But on a financial side, these, the Piedmont Clinic can negotiate the rates with the um, insurance company. A few years ago, there was a big issue with one of the major insurers where they, they tried to really undercut a lot of the physicians in, in, in Georgia. And there was, a, there was a big battle between Piedmont and insurers and ultimately Piedmont won. So the pitch you'll hear is you have to grow, you have to be part of these big corporations in order to survive. Mm -hmm. That's just not true. There are other means out there. Um, so yes, the goal is to grow and, and be big, but it's not necessarily to, to battle these things. What it is on the other hand is a larger practice can ultimately have a bigger cell because there is always a second cell in this, in this, um, in this uh, scenario. Mm -hmm. take, take VRAD for instance. In 2015, Mednex 
um, which is a, a you know an investor funded practice, bought VRAD in 2015, and as of this year, 2020, five years later, VRAD is now sold to Rad Partners or is in the process of it. I'm not mm -hmm. sure exactly where in the process they are. Um, so usually for these medical practices held by private equity or, or venture capital, the whole period is typically, it's trending towards longer but in that five to 10 year time frame. So the investors that are driving the decisions for acquisitions, they're looking for short-term gains. That is private equity. So again, there's always a second sell. It's not always to another private equity or venture capital back group. It could be a sell, um, you know, private equity could, can come into a market, kind of coalesce a bunch of practices in a market and then sell it back to the dominant hospital system, for instance. Mm -hmm. Then everyone becomes a hospital employee. Or um, if they get big enough, then the idea of an IPO or public offering mm -hmm. um, starts getting a little bit into the conversation. So the goal to, is to grow, but not so that they can, you know, be big and be on your side to fight the bad guys. The goal is so that they can get more money on the back end. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of talking a little bit about some of the things that perhaps an associate in a practice should keep an eye out for. Sure. Let's kind of circle back around to that. Uh, yeah. What what sort of things might might you see if you were in a group who was who was looking at one of joining one of these? Yeah. So when when I when I went into interview season, I had my sort of list of questions that were around this topic. Mm -hmm. um, you can't just come guns blazing and say, "Hey, are you selling out?" <laughs> like you know, you know, first question or anything like that. But you can sort of introduce these questions organically into the conversation. Um, you know. The, the important thing is not to come into it sort of off the bat accusatory or anything like that, but sort of ask, have you had any discussions? What are your group's thoughts on this trend mm -hmm. and things like that? And it's important to ask everyone you interview with because again, these deals happen in dark rooms first before they ever see the light of day. So it could be that a, you know, a junior partner or associate in practice has no idea that this is going on, yeah. but the president of the practice is being pitched, hey, just talk to us. If you sell your practice, then you can be a member of the board of a big national corporation, because that's typically what happens to the presidents of the practices that mm -hmm. sell. Um, so try to get an organic feeling of what people's perceptions are of the topic. Um, and the red flags are, you know, just dismissal because, oh yeah, no, no, we're, we're, we're not, we're not worried about that stuff. We're not thinking about that. Um, I had one practice, which the, the funny thing is, um, I interviewed with them. They were, they were a big established practice. They're a monolith in their community. Um, they had to uh, bring up another important point to look out for. They had a very long partnership track. Uh, for full parity. And um, they, when I asked these questions, they were just really kind of dismissive about it. They were like, no, no, yeah, yeah, we've been approached. We're not really interested. And then mm -hmm. I interviewed with the president of the practice and he started playing devil's advocate. Be like, okay, just to play that devil's advocate, uh, here are some benefits of corporations. And I'm just like, why, why would you be, 
you know. Yeah, why, you have, you, why are you pitching me on it? Why are you pitching me on this? Like, <laughs> you know, you have a, they had a 10-year track for partnership for wow. full parity. That's the longest they, I've heard of. They had, they had 10 years of technical fee sharing and that they had this very long track. And that's another thing to look out for because associates having a, a um, having a good bit of associates means that there's less money that they have to pay up front. I'll give you an example. Um, there is an acquisition that's in the works that I'm aware of. I won't go into details to respect the you know people involved. Mm-hmm. But this practice hired nine associates this year. Wow. And then you have to think. They're they're not that big, you know, they're kind of in the, the mid-range. So why would a practice just all of a sudden want to buy or hire a ton of associates up front? And the rationale, this is this is a new idea to me, even because this is this is the first time I heard about this sort of tactic. They if they hire a bunch of associates knowing that some of them are gonna leave in an acquisition. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that could kill a deal is if the associates all leave and they don't have staffing, then they're immediately understaffed. The partners won't be happy because now they just thought they were going to coast through the rest of their careers through this easy job now without having to have work hard or anything. Then now all of a sudden they're, it works all on them. Um, so this idea of getting a bunch of associates um, to kind of another another red flag the risk yeah so if you know ask how many people they're hiring Mm -hmm. and how many positions they have open and then another important thing just generally outside of this topic is um asking why they're hiring you know are they hiring because of attrition are they hiring because of retirements are they hiring because they're actually growing their practices which is Mm -hmm. a good reason to hire Mm -hmm. so that's another important consideration there um, but it's, it's really gotta be an organic conversation. And the truth is, even if they are in talks, they don't have to tell you a thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as you get towards the later parts of an interview and, and, you know, you're really thinking this is the group and the group's, you know, sending you contracts and stuff like that. That's really when you start delving, delving into it, because at that point you really have to figure out if that's the right fit. Um, and at that point, I've heard a few practices, a few associates securing this sort of clause in their contracts. Mm-hmm. Namely, if the practice sells um, to any entity or merges with another practices and it results in sort of you know big cash out or, or something for the partners, then they immediately become, you know, they get the same benefits that the partners do. Yeah. So that's, that's a really hard thing to come to a practice with us as an applicant, but it is something that some applicants are, are getting in their contracts. Um, and you know, that still, that helps mitigate the risk, but it doesn't make it go away altogether because even if they sell, you get the benefits, but you're still, you're still part of that. Yeah. So. I would think that a lot of private practices would probably not agree to that. Maybe there's a few that would. Um, what other 
uh, ways can associates or people who have already signed with a group uh, kind of either uh, fight back? Um, So I, I think when in this context and just generally when someone starts in a practice, it's really important to get out there and network. There's three, you know, three main groups you want to network with. You want to network amongst your associate peers um, because it's really important to sort of develop sort of a communal, um, communal um, grouping for, for the associates. Like you really should have like a WhatsApp chat group or something like that, just to ping things off, even like, Hey, this is a weird case type thing. Even Mm -hmm. from that standpoint, it's, I think it's a good idea to have, you know, a solid group, a close knit group of associates um, for multiple benefits. But in the event that your group starts talking about a cell, you can be sort of more of a united front. The second group that it's important to, to network with are sort of obviously the partners. Okay. Um, from the standpoint that you want to have a nice, good, solid relationship so that if you do hear rumors of, about something going down, then you might get to the level of trust where if they're saying one thing or another, then you can, you can get that, the, that the a little better. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, this practice that I'm telling, I told you about that is in the talks of a cell. Um, I've been talking, I've had a lot of their associates call me and, and you know, try to walk through a bunch of scenarios and stuff with me. And one thing, one of the guys was telling me is that he did develop, you know, good conversations with, with his partners and what he's trying to do and what the other suits and practices are trying to do are trying to talk to the more long career high rise partners that do have a vote in, in the mm-hmm. decision and could kill the deal because they have to understand that they're being pitched, you know, the best rosiest picture possible of an acquisition. And it's really on the associates and junior partners that don't want to go into this to, to kind of disseminate other information that's contrary to sort of the propaganda that's coming from, you know, professional marketers. Um, so it's really about coalition building in this scenario. If there's any, if there's any hope of killing a deal, which it has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been successful times where this happened. The third cohort of people to get to know, and again, this is just generic advice beyond this topic, is the hospital administrators. So um, if you as an associate are actively engaged in hospital administrators, you can start getting on you know, uh, medical staff committees and various committees with the, within the hospital and really integrate as an associate. Um, one that's just generally good for, you know, development and, and potential growth within a practice. But two, what it does is if a practice has a lot of different hospitals, and for instance, this practice that I, I was referencing, there's one hospital that predominantly associates go to because it's a little bit farther, none of the partners want to drive out there. So for years, this practice or this hospital has only had associates come. Mm-hmm. That's the people that they know. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a stretch, but you know, that is a, that is a scenario where if you're the ones that have the, the relationship with the hospital administrators, 
when the acquisition happens, those contracts become null and void and the hospital has to re-up the contract with the new larger entity. So it could be the case where the associates could band together and just take the contract, for instance. So, um, and, and just generally, if you, even beyond that sort of doomsday scenario, having the administrators come to bat to you, kind of talk to the, the senior partners about, the, about this, you know, um, try to explain some of the, the reasons why it's, it might not be good for the hospital. For instance, um, there's a scenario that happened in the Carolinas uh, with the anesthesia practice that was uh, bought by um, a private equity group. And the anesthesia group, I think it was about 90 anesthesiologists. And I think if I remember correctly, it was bought by Mednex and it was um, you know, Atrium Health, I think it was. This all happened 2018, 2019 timeframe. Um, anesthesia group sells, contract is up for renegotiation and Mednex and, and Atrium Health just butt heads. They can't come to agreement. Anesthesia group gets fired. Atrium Health tries to renegotiate with the original anesthesiologist. Mednex sues Atrium Health and the anesthesiologist, block the deal. Anesthesiologists get displaced. Hospital group has to bring a new anesthesia practice. So from, from a hospital standpoint, typically the hospitals that are big hospital systems enjoy the power of sort of being the bigger entity in the discussion. Sure. So it's not always necessarily good for hospitals that, you know, big corporate entity that has thousands of people and, you know, big sway to come into town and start having to battle them as equals. So um, it sounds a little bit weird to pitch that it's not necessarily a bad thing to be on the, the smaller guy when talking to hospitals, but that's one scenario where, where yeah. it doesn't necessarily benefit. Yeah. So having that relationship with administrators can kind of help these conversations develop. Absolutely. So uh, I, I may already know the answer to this question, but can you uh, see any overall positives to being a member of one of these uh, larger corporatized groups? There's the idea of, oh, you get shares in a practice once you get partnered. Now, the thing that's important to understand about the shares and 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 whatnot that you get in a corporation is there are different tiers. There's preferred stock, there's you know more basic stock, and then there's bonds that um, really are from the bank side that are highly leveraged these practices because these all these private equity and venture capital backed groups, they're highly leveraged. They're hundreds of millions of dollars in the hole because the idea is once they can consolidate, then they can recoup their money down the line. Um, so it could be the case that you join one of these, you take the risk and, and then it becomes the next Apple. And even though you had peon stocks to begin with, even those peon stocks have massive potential down the line. So, you know, there's that theoretical benefit, but you know, for every Apple, there's, you know, thousands of, of you know, circuit cities or that didn't whatever. happen down the line. Um, and then, and then there's the other factor is if you, if you have your family in a particular area, there's no other practices and whatnot, then obviously having the benefit of, of being where you want to be in that scenario. I mean, you just got to take it for what it is. 
um, you know, most people that go into private practice really sort of are sort of the entre entrepreneurial mindset. Uh, my one of the questions we asked in that um, survey work that I did was um, how many people are interested in the business, and you know, it's nearing eighty percent. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the mindset of the cohort that choose private practice. You know, private practice isn't for everyone, obviously. Um, there are very rich careers that happen, particularly in academics or um, hospital employment, VA, other opportunities. So the thing is, if, if you know, building a practice, you know, working hard, you know, taking extra call, knowing that ultimately at the end of the year, you got to pay your bonus. If that's sort of like where you want to be, um, you're not going to get that with the, the corporate thing because you're kind of capped. You might get floated some incentives here and there, but beyond that, I, me personally, I just, I don't, I don't see the appeal for people in sort of our demographic. What, what do you say about the argument that they can kind of, um, you know, they can leverage their size to, to use these AI tools and uh, that sort of stuff? Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because <laughs> this is another idea that it sounds good. It sounds awesome on the front end, right? But, but walk with me a few, few years down the line. So, okay, you're at the entry level. You got all these nice, cool tools that you get to play with. Um, you get your pulmonary nodule search. You got your brain blood. You got all these cool tools that will help you, um, you know, with your job and whatnot. But okay, so now these collection of tools get more robust five to ten years down the road. Um, you have a constant lobby going from. PAs, nurse practitioners, radiology assistants that are always have independent practice on their horizon. That, that's where it's going. You know, it's a matter of how quick, how much we can pause it and, and, and stop it. But that they're full steam ahead with that. Well, stay tuned. We're going to, we're going to do a podcast on that too, pretty soon. So, okay, cool. <laughs> well, I have a paper coming out about that topic actually as well. Um, Great. Here in January. <laughs> But um, anyway, so here's the trifecta. Although it sounds cool to have all these tools now, there will come a point in time where it no longer, it's no longer incentivized for the corporation to keep expensive physicians as on their payroll. Mm -hmm. So these tools that you're looking now if, if you have an independent private practice and you're reaping the benefit of efficiency gains, absolutely, yeah. yeah. AI tools are awesome because you're gonna make your group more efficient, you're gonna have you know, higher level care, you can pitch these to contracts, to hospitals, you know, all of the benefits of AI plus radiologists over radiologists without AI. So I'm into that. Now, it, it has ultimate benefit for an independent private practice because that benefits shared equally amongst the partners in a corporation standpoint. Yeah. You get to be the end user, but you don't get any benefits beyond that. You don't get the benefits of any you know, improvement in the practices uh, from a financial standpoint. 
And it gets worse because if these corporations start siding with the nurse practitioners and PA lobby and start throwing their millions of dollars in donations to Congress to start going down that route and they can secure some more states with independent practices. And then they can start like California was trying to do this year to allow um, nurse practitioners to read independent x-rays, ultrasounds and mammography mm -hmm. that got shot down luckily through ACR and CRS efforts. But that is always going to be knocking on the door. And if NPs can secure that they can read x-rays and ultrasounds independently, that's a large portion of, yeah. you know, yeah. most practices. Yeah, the CTs and MRIs are higher dollar value per unit, but there's still a large cohort of, of x-rays and ultrasounds. So if a corporation can have AI that supplements their PAs and get them independent practice, now that AI that you find so attractive now is now your worst enemy in the wrong hands. Mm -hmm. So yes, AI is awesome and you can benefit it as an user, but unless you're the one that's reaping the benefits of it on the back end as well, it's, it's not necessarily your friend. Yeah. I think, I think that's an important point that you're, you're bringing up that in the long game, what exactly is the, is the ultimate goal here? And for these corporations, obviously maximizing profits, however they can do that. And like you're saying here is a huge cut would be a huge cost cutting measure to, uh, to use a nurse practitioner, say nothing against nurse practitioners personally, but, uh, you know, it's much less expensive to employ one of them than a radiologist. And if you can augment them with AI to uh, perform at a similar level, uh, then obviously they're going to go that route. They don't mm -hmm. have your, your best interest at, at heart here. Are, are there different forms of these groups? Like, I mean, we've, uh, some people out there may have heard of groups like strategic radiology. Um, we talked before we started recording a little bit about U.S. radiology Obviously, we've mentioned Rad Partners. There's a few others out there. You mentioned Mednax, who is leaving the radiology space. But um, is there any difference between all of these groups? Yeah. So um, obviously, there are going to be some groups that push culture and things like that more so than others. Mm -hmm. um, another one in the space is Envision. But um, last I heard, they're exploring bankruptcy. Um, so just baseline culture is, is a difference. Now, you mentioned strategic. Um, I do want to highlight that strategic is more of a practice cohort. Um, it's not venture capital and private equity backed. Um, it's more of a, a group of independent practices across the country, different markets that share best practices, um, maybe have some back-end billings benefits and, and some contract negotiation type things with if they own tech equipment, as far as like CTs and MRI acquisitions and things like that. So strategic is sort of its own independent, unique entity. Um, so they're not really grouped in with these. This is sort of one of those things I mentioned earlier that there are other ways to achieve these benefits without mm -hmm. selling your autonomy. That's and kind that, of more That's why I brought them up is because I wanted to, to kind of, I mean, I don't know personally of any other similar groups to strategic, maybe you do. Um, but I think that that's a, a big difference that you just pointed out is that there are groups of radiologists who are banding together to have similar effects to these larger um, PE backed groups. Yeah, there, I, I'm drawing a blank and I'll, I'll have to look into there's a there's another one that's crafted similar to strategic that's coming out of Texas. 
Um, it's much smaller, it's, it's relatively new, um, but there is another entity, at least one, that is kind of framed in the same light. Dr. Ortiz is talking about Collaborative Imaging, a radiologist-owned alliance. Um, now, there is uh, <clears throat> another press, RADnet, that, now they are a little bit different. They take a little share of the, of the pro fee, but they're predominantly tech fee heavy. So their target practice are ones that own a lot of equipment because then they standardize the packs and, and buy all the tech fee stuff and, and manage all, all the sort of IT and, and whatnot. Um, and so then the practice kind of steps away from pro plus tech and becomes pro minus a little bit of a percentage. Um, I, I don't, I don't know those contracts as well, but I still think they, they maintain the majority of their, their pro fee as far as like, um, being employed of the, the company and stuff like that. I, I don't know that as well as some of these other entities, but I know that is one distinction that at least they like to highlight. Um, so I guess, how do, how do you see, let's say you have a, a large private practice who hasn't joined say rad partners or whoever else you want to mention. Um, but they have similar, uh, types of, you know, they have this long private partner, uh, partnership workup and perhaps operate similar to how some of these groups might, how do you see those as different? Um, so. I think they're different because if they don't sell, there's still light at the end of the tunnel. There's still an ultimate goal you're, you're looking to achieve. Um, so I, I think the end game is really what the distinction is because all your sweat equity, all the amount of time and, and growth you do into the practice ultimately will make you an equal decision-making shared partner. Mm -hmm. So, you will still be part of the team that gets to drive the decisions. These corporate groups, they'll, they'll float all sorts of titles at people that say, okay, you're the chief of this, or you're the president and vice president of this. But th those are just kind of like lipstick on a pig really, because ultimately the people that are making the decisions are the investors and the people beholden to the investors. So the people at the top. So, um, in an independent private practice or in an academic setting or in a hospital based employment, you know, those titles start to have like a substantial meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see the, the direct benefits of those things like that. So I think those are really the two main distinctions of, of, of these large groups. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned these groups as well, because I think if say your, your, pra your practice, your, uh, one of the smaller ones and you're constantly under threat from, you know, these corporations, especially in sort of larger markets where there might be a few practices. Okay. So I don't want to go this route. What can I offer as an alternative? Right? So I think there are a couple of things. Um, one being, if you can find one of these sort of these clinic models can get a lot of the benefits Two are um, MSOs which are sort of like light mergers amongst practices where they share back-end billing. So they can kind of get the benefit of, of negotiating with billing companies and whatnot to, to do that. Um, so these light mergers, I think, are at least a start 
to get a little bit of scale. And then also, if you have uh, only a few um, hospital systems in your market, you know, you can start negotiating as sort of one umbrella, even though you maintain your independence. So mm -hmm. there, there can be structures of organizations in place where, yeah, you're one practice for a tax ID or whatever, but you maintain your independent um, hiring practices, your independent call schedule, the money at the end of the year is divvied up based off of eat what you kill type thing, but at the practice scale. Mm -hmm. So there are ways to do it where you can attain these benefits. Um, and then also, I think that <clears throat> things you mentioned like strategic or, or some other entities where and I don't know why there are not more of these, honestly, because there's obviously a hunger out there for some sort of, you know, strength in numbers things. Mm -hmm. But why does it have to be you lose your autonomy? It should be a marketplace where if the company that is pitching you all of these benefits sucks, you can fire them, you know, like, and companies should, you know, not try to monopolize these type of things and, and you know, have a good enough product where yes, they're improving quality. Yes, they have these AI tools that are actually benefit to, you know, all these value added is to the practice and then say, okay, we'll take five, we'll take 10% of, you know, net revenue or something like that. I think you're asking a little too much of, of businesses <laughs> these days to, to but, act but, in a good. <laughs> but think, but think from a business strategy, if you have a market right now where there's obviously a big counter current against you know mm -hmm. takeover completely this is this is a right market for having a good collection of tools where you can vastly outpace practices that are losing their autonomy because then you say okay we're going to give you the same benefits as these practices but you're going to maintain your autonomy yeah and and then instead of, you know, talking a couple of mergers here and there every year, they can, you know, pitch to tons of practices. And, um, and, and even though they're getting less per practice, um, they can ultimately get gain a larger market share. Uh, I, I agree. I think that uh, having more of those types of players in, in radiology would be very beneficial for, for all of us. Um, we see uh, perhaps fewer groups go in the route that they are right now because they'd have more options. And then we just have a more vibrant, uh, basically uh, for a marketplace essentially, because that's how, that's how this all works, right? Is to have uh, nobody monopolizing uh, radiology, but to have as many uh, different ways to, to get what people want as they, as they can get. Because the beauty of radiology has always been, you know, push for innovation, all of these things you start losing that 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 push once you start getting these monopolies because then at that point then you only have to do a little bit every year a mm -hmm. little bit but if you're in this constant you know robust diverse market then there's always going to be that push to, to improve and, and get better so you know ultimately what's the end game for corporations you know they're going to have four like they did in australia have four or five practices that now mon monopolize all the practices and now everyone's an employee of these four practices we didn't even touch on the college 
So now we go down the 20 years down the line and now there's four or five corporations that now employ all the radiologists. Mm -hmm. And they're all going to make the decisions for the college. The college will no longer be an independent entity. Mm -hmm. And the benefit, the, the, the lobbying wing of the college quality and safety, all of these things would, would now be sort of the hand of, of the corporations. I think uh, that's an important point you bring up that we hadn't touched on yet. And uh, I would like to encourage all young physician section members to get involved if you're, if you're in a private practice or academics or wherever you are, because um, we need to keep it as diverse as possible. Absolutely. Any, um, any other thoughts or um, things you'd like to say on this topic? Yeah, um, I, think, uh, I think ultimately um, it's important for people to get out there and cut through the propaganda and really see what's going on. Um, there's a few papers out by uh, Larry Muroff and Frank Lexa and, and the paper that you mentioned that, that I was part of. There's a couple of other RLI, um, you know, webinars, Basics of Corporatization, which, which was done in October 2017, uh, Trends, in uh, Trends in Corporatization, which was a two-part series in April, May 2020. So I think, um, getting educated and, and getting involved, as you said, in the college, because, you know, our, our group, our YPS section is the one that stands to lose the most because we have the longest career horizons and we will be the ones that see the, the downstream impact more so than the people that are at the top of the college right now, because they're seeing the short-sighted view, just like the practices that are selling. So, the dollars of donations, membership, and things like that are really attractive to the college right now. But if we as a YPS and residents and fellows choose not to be members of the college anymore, then what's the college's alternative? We really need to, to ban as a section to kind of advocate for ourselves and, and, and make sure that the future of radiology stays with the radiologists and not driven by anyone else. That is a great way to close it, I think. So um, thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Ortiz. We really appreciate your thoughts on this topic. Obviously, you uh, are very well-versed in, in all of it, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you very much for the invitation and the time to talk. You can reach Dr. Dan Ortiz on Twitter at DanOrtizMD. Once again, on Twitter at DanOrtizMD. So just in closing on this difficult subject, I'd like to thank both Dr. Ortiz and Dr. Hawk for their time and for giving us their thoughts uh, from different perspectives when it comes to corporate radiology. There are a lot of strong emotions when it comes to this topic, and we hope that you gain something from this episode. Uh, we should also consider that there may be space within radiology for corporate groups. Certainly there are benefits to their scale and we should welcome all the help we can get within our organizations, but we must remain cognizant of any attempts to overtake the global organizational structure. And we must also consider any long-term outcomes that may come along with this and push these groups to be transparent in how they operate, particularly for our young radiologists. At the end of the day, radiology should always belong to the radiologists for we are best equipped to take care of patients and push our specialty forward while keeping the patients at the center of what we do.